This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you some of the most important and informative conversations we've had this week on our daily radio show. And Jason, Let's remind everybody, it's week 14, working from home for many of us. Uh, Even as New York City, once the center of the pandemic in the U.S., it continued to reopen along with much of the New York metro area. Meanwhile, we saw other states this week around the U.S. We saw their virus numbers go up. And some of the headlines crossing the Bloomberg, companies cutting workers, industries are still continuing to struggle with the economic shutdown. Right. And not to mention roiling protests uh, mm-hmm. continuing across the country and a reckoning of sorts, certainly on the front lines of corporate America. This is not just a societal problem. This isn't just people uh, out marching in the streets. This is a real conversation that's happening inside boardrooms at companies. We know that. We've talked to a lot of people about that. Yeah, and our conversations this week were really full of stark realities, I felt like. We continue to fight that health crisis. There are many millions out of work, and we're still trying to figure out, as you said, why racism persists in our world. Hey, Carol, that was part of my conversation with TPG founding partner and co-CEO Jim Coulter. We spent 45 minutes at a live event walking through what it is like to invest in a new era. And that new era is not only about coronavirus, of course, but it's also about a new era of corporate responsibility and corporate accountability. Plus, we talked with Sports Illustrated executive editor and contributing correspondent for CBS 60 Minutes, John Wertheim, a friend of the show. We talked with him, Jason, on how to restart sports in a pandemic. Tennis, he says, pretty easy to do social distancing, which may explain why the USTA said the U.S. Open will happen as scheduled in late summer in New York, but it's going to be very different. Yeah, we're not going to be there most likely because no spectators. Mm -hmm. Uh, Plus, another edition of Business Week Talks featuring our conversation with Hilton President and CEO Chris Nassetta. Right. Hospitality industry still reeling from the virus. First up, though, as we mentioned, our conversations this week really full of stark realities. We continue, as we know, to be in the thick of that health crisis, and we're still trying to figure out why racism persists in our world. And we start there with our cover story on how quotas can help fix the glaring whiteness of America's C-suites. We cut up with Rebecca Greenfield. She's in charge of diversity coverage here at Bloomberg News. Yeah, so I think you mentioned the main problem, which is how few black leaders there are. And this is not because they have there hasn't been a lot of effort to change the makeup of companies. There have been billions of dollars spent and decades of trying and lots of companies saying it's in their best interest to do this. And both companies, one person I quoted said so, but it's so well said that they look like plantations. The organizational chart looks like plantations and black folks are at the bottom. That was a quote that someone gave me. And that's the reality and, it's, and it hasn't changed. So what's, what, when cut left their own devices, companies aren't really able to move the needle. And it's, it's a, because it's a very complicated and difficult problem to solve. So like I was wondering if we need something more aggressive or more coercive and quotas are very controversial, but they have been proven to work in that capacity, which is to get more representation. They don't fix everything. They don't fix racism, but they do move the needle more than what companies are doing. And we know, Rebecca, it has helped move the needle with women, correct? Yeah, so there is this law that was passed in California um, a couple of years ago that where they required boards there to have um, at least one female director um, by last year, and then they're upping that 
um, depending on the size of the board. So there were there's a quota. They've been sued because, like Joel mentioned, quotas mm. have some are in a legal gray area. But it has pushed all of these boards of public companies in California to add women, um, and they were worried that they wouldn't be able to find qualified candidates. But at the end of the day, they they did to comply because if they didn't comply, they had to pay. $100,000 fine. Well, and it's interesting, you know, Becky, you, you also bring up the idea that even talking about them may spur action. I mean, is that a, a reasonable argument? I mean, what, what do you think about that? Well, I would say that so far, a lot of the feedback, <laughs> I think talking about them gets a lot of people upset um, yeah. because they don't like them. I can tell you that from my Twitter mentions, which is going to turn for the worse today. <laughs> um, but I think my the, my kind of motivation for making this argument and writing this and thinking about this for a long time is that we do need something more radical if there's going to be real change because there is a lot of you know mealy mouth or what I mean very well meaning action yeah. in this area and it, it doesn't doesn't do anything. Right. Um, I think it's also a rethinking of what affirmative action or quotas are for. And I think. Some people I talked to said we need to rethink it as this way of counteracting right. racism, well, not as like this representation challenge. And that's reporter Rebecca Greenfield. As you mentioned at the top, she leads all the coverage. She has been unbelievably busy, took some time to write this cover. It's the remarks in the magazine and takes quotas straight on uh, and really sort of weighs the benefits and the negatives of doing that and makes some comparisons, some important comparisons to what companies have done when it comes to gender. But as she rightly points out, nothing gets people charged up like quotas. So certainly, though, something that's being discussed considering some of the inequalities that are out there. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, one of our go-to voices on the pandemic, we're talking about Dr. William Hazeltine. He joins us on his new book, A Family Guide to COVID. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show this week. And the virus still front and center, all the inequalities, all the challenges that come from trying to fight this disease, Carol. Right. And Jason, one of the voices that we always look forward to talking to about the virus, he understands the healthcare and biotech world so well. We caught up again with Dr. William Hazeltine. He's the chairman and president of Access Health International. It's a nonprofit think tank. Its mission is to improve access to high quality and affordable health care for people everywhere. His latest mission, a new book, it's for families. It's called A Family Guide to COVID. And it's really to help everybody at all different ages talk about the virus. Well, I'm looking right now at what's happened in Florida. And in many ways, it was predictable. It was averaging about 500, between four and 500, 600, up to 800 cases sometimes for about a month and a half. And then starting in uh, the end of May, early June, it just started to rise. There were 2,500 new cases. and now there may be about 2,000 new cases. It's pretty serious. And what it means is that the precautions that people were taking were eased off about two weeks ago. And we're now seeing that as uh, spikes in uh, newly diagnosed infections, mostly because people are 
getting uh, mildly ill or seriously ill. Uh, and that's happening in many parts of the country. Some other parts, like New York City, it's still relatively uh, calm. Uh, people in New York got really scared, and they know it's important to uh, keep social distance. Uh, but even in New York, it's, uh, people are beginning to forget. And so what have we learned about our initial response, Dr. Hazeltine, that we can maybe put into practice now? Because there is this, I think, strong resistance on the part of both government leaders and just everyday people to go back to a full-on shutdown. Yeah, I understand that. It's, uh, it's fully, fully understandable. And um, what uh, the way I look at it is the following. We paid a price, but we didn't get the benefit. That's because we didn't do it right. Mm. We didn't really enforce contact tracing and mandatory isolation. And people weren't particularly observant. All, all the people weren't observant about the precautions they were urged to take. So we never cleared the infection like a number of other countries did, or we reduced it down to a very manageable level of, say, a half a dozen, five, six in the whole country. We just didn't do that. And so we, we paid a price, but we didn't get a benefit. The net result is we're now going to end up in a different situation, which is I call it back to the future. When I was born 75 years ago, uh, it was right on the cusp of the vaccine and antibiotic miracles. Before that time, people lived with the understanding that death could strike them at any moment. Even I remember polio. I remember being terrified of rheumatic fever. Those are things we couldn't control. And in fact, we built America. We built the world in a world without vaccines, and in a world without antibiotics. But you pay a price that we're beginning to understand, and that price is death is at your shoulder at all moments. And it seems that we're willing to adapt to that. We've adapted in the past. We'll adapt again. We are exiting the time, at least for now, where we have a free ride and don't have to worry about dying of an infectious disease tomorrow. Wow. Okay. So, so how do we do this? Because, you know, you're right. You know, we're kind of in this interesting situation. And yes, history has shown us we can forge ahead and we can, you know, build society, but there is a cost to it. So as we reopen, do we we'll do it? You will pay the price. Yes, we do do it. I, I happen to agree we don't have any choice because Americans seem to be undisciplined. And we don't have either the leadership, the governments, or the government apparatus that we need. We need leaders that are clear, consistent, credible, and compassionate. We need government governance that works. And we need a public health service, very much like an army that has unitary command from the top to the bottom. When the president says it's up to the governors, he's right. He doesn't have a tool he can use like he can use the military abroad. We don't have that tool. When the governors say it's up to the municipalities and the cities, I live in New York, and you can see the tension between the governor and the mayor. And the mayor might even, in some places, or the county leader may say, it's up to the local authorities. We don't have unitary command in public health service. If there's a lesson we learn from this, we need unitary command 
to protect us internally as we do externally. Our biggest threats in my lifetime have not come from abroad. Mm. They've come from diseases within our own country. Whether it was HIV AIDS or whether it was a number of other diseases, polio that I can remember, right. those are the big threats. Right. And we're not prepared for those like we are prepared for external threats. Right. That's Dr. William Hazeltine. He's the chairman and president of Access Health International. And I do think, Jason, when we finished our conversation with him during the week, we both were like, whoa, we're still yeah. in the thick of it. That's exactly right. And I think he reminded us that this is affecting lots of different people and that depending on what age you are and depending on your perspective, you may have different questions. He also reminded us that this is fast moving. And so one of the things I really like about this book is it does exist in paper. You can get it, but it also gives you access to a website because the questions and the answers, they're always changing. Right. And I also thought one of the takeaways, and he says we need kind of a huge public health service in place on the scale and operational level of the military if we really, really want to get ahead of the virus. And he says, we don't really have that in place. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we go to the intersection of the two crises that we are constantly talking about, the health crisis and racial justice. We catch up with the CEO and co-founder of Incredible Health. It's an important conversation. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show throughout the week. We caught up with Dr. Iman Abu Zaid. We had spoken with her a few weeks back, Carol. She's the CEO and co-founder of Incredible Health. Initially, back in the day, back mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, <laughs> we had caught up about essentially how hospitals are being staffed. She has a new model to really match nurses into the healthcare system. We wanted to talk to her about some different things this time about diversity in healthcare and also her personal experience being a black founder. We did a pretty detailed nurse impact study and discovered that 2% of the nurses, only 2% of the nurses felt that their hospitals were very prepared and what a lot of the hospitals have been, have been spending their time doing in the last couple of months is getting a stockpile of personal protective equipment and also getting their infection control protocols in place so it's safer um, for, so it's safer for patients to come back. Right. This is a business model question to some extent. I wonder, it, though, why in an area that's so known for innovation and at least outwardly uh, forward thinking, why this lesson hasn't been learned earlier around Silicon Valley? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the, the statistics are bad. Uh, you know, less than 1% of venture capital goes to black founders even though we're starting over 10% of the companies. Um, I think there's two challenges there. One is just making it a pro- actually making it a priority um, and believing that the problem is real. And then the, first, the, the second is, you know, it, the solutions are more around ex- investors expanding their networks. Yeah. Uh, so they're more diverse. And so they're able to source better deal flow that way. And then the second is like looking at the bias and it's, that's going on in the actual diligence um, process. Honestly, it compares a lot to what operators do as well when we're hiring. Um, When we're hiring and we're looking to hire a diverse team, we do have to look at our sourcing as well as the actual interview process itself to make sure we end up with a diverse team or in the case of investors, a diverse portfolio. Right. You need to have a focus. You have to have a concerted effort. You have to know that this is what you want to do, right, to get it done. Uh, Absolutely. And, And I think that's probably the biggest piece that's missing. 
just making it a priority, having a goal tied to it, making someone accountable to it, someone's performance evaluation is going to be tied to it. You know, and, and once you do that um, as a leader and especially as a CEO, then, then change starts to happen internally. Right, because that's what, you know, we've had so many conversations and we wonder, so what's different this time around? This is not a new problem, right? Um, it's been going on for a long time. Do you have hope that something changes dramatically in terms of diversity and, you know, getting rid of racism in our society? I mean, this is the first time in, in, in my lifetime that I've seen non-Black communities heavily involved and engaged and enraged by this topic. And the, the media attention on it is also very high as well. So I'm hopeful that there will be some permanent changes. Um, that's, you know, it's long past due. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, back to Incredible Health for, for a minute. I mean, how does that play through your own business model? Because I believe the last time you were with us, you were talking about this issue of, you know, diversity across the healthcare spectrum and especially dealing in this pandemic, which has been ultimately very uh, – discriminating in its own uh, way against, you know, people of color, people from lower socioeconomic bounds. Uh, how are you seeing it play out in your business and, and, uh, and through this crisis? Yeah, so Incredible Health at its core is a software platform. And so there's a couple of ways where it plays out. First is that when, it's, when it comes to building the actual software itself, um, we do have to keep in mind that we are building it for a very diverse population. Um, over 20% of nurses self-identify as minorities. And so we do have to take things into account, such as uh, features that remove bias in hiring. Um, you know, like re- we remove the current locations, for example, uh, of nurses because we noticed that employers were discriminating on based on, simply based on location. Wow. Um, another thing we do is we provide salary calculators uh, to all the nurses on our platform and career coaches because um, minorities are usually, they don't negotiate as hard or, or not as aware of what their salaries should be. And so we really do build um, features and products that make, you know, reduce the, the amount of discrimination that's happening. And that's Dr. Iman Abuzay joining us from San Francisco, the co-founder and the CEO of Incredible Health. And I really appreciated her candor, Carol, mm-hmm, her too. sharing her experience with us, both as a person, as a really well-educated, successful person who still faces some of the systemic racism that is in Silicon Valley, but also she faces it on behalf of her company all right. the time and dealing with this question of diversity within the healthcare system. Well, remember, she's one of a small number of venture-backed female black founders in the health tech sector. So she is in a unique position to not only look at, of course, what's going on in the virus, but also uh, racism in America and being a black corporate leader. Uh, She really, I feel like, um, gave us some great insight into all of that. And she also notes, Jason, that diversity isn't just a moral and human rights issue. It's also about building a better business. So really gave us some wonderful perspective. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, my conversation with TPG founding partner, co-CEO Jim Coulter. He usually talks about the year ahead in November, but we had to get a reboot on that. That's coming up. That's exactly what it was. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show this week and even beyond the radio show, Carol. You know, we always like to mix it up. 
We do. And Jason, you had a great conversation this week. It was part of a Bloomberg Live virtual event called The Year Ahead Revisited, Investing in a New Era event. And you caught up with Jim Coulter because usually at the end of the year, right, you talk about with him what's to come in the coming year. Well, here you did halfway through 2020, a reboot because this year is not turning out like everyone expected. Not at all. And uh, I was very grateful to him for doing this because basically I went to him a few weeks ago and this was even before the killing of George Floyd and all the racial protests and all the racial reckoning and so- social reckoning that has ensued. And I said, look, the world is so different from what we talked about in November. Would you consider this reboot, as you said? And he was very gracious and you know, was able to really get real with me and our massive audience on this to let them know how an investor, but also how a business leader is thinking about all these conversations. So 27 years ago, Jason, when we began building TPG, we realized as well as building an investment firm, we were building a really interesting front row seat for the world of business. So if you look inside our ecosystem today, over 200 companies across 29 different countries, 12 different sectors, more than $100 billion of revenue. And we're in the boardroom of those companies watching the challenges they face. In addition, we write almost 10,000 pages a year of things called investment memos. Think of them as research. And so we challenged ourselves to, from time to time, pick our head up from the individual investments and see what the ecosystem is telling us about the world. We began sharing that privately with our investors. And somewhere along the way, I'm not quite sure how you did it, you convinced me to do this publicly. And uh, here we are. And I have to say, Part of the inspiration for this was, candidly, me thinking about you and thinking what you must be uh, going through in your own mind and and with your team. You know, it's also interesting for me to think about as we kick off this idea that even when you and I conceived this a a couple months ago, this, this refresh, the world has become a very different place. And, and I would love for you to, to set the table, if you can, by talking about these dual crises that, that we're facing, you know, one that we've been in for a number of weeks now, a number of months, but one that's a little more recent. Let's start, if we can, on this question of racial justice, because I know it's something you've thought about, and I know that TPG is talking about, and that you're talking to that huge uh, uh, sort of Rolodex, or not even Rolodex, but you know the partners that you have around the world. Uh, a lot has changed since we were together in November. A number of the trends we're talking about, the rise of subscription businesses, corporate responsibility are continuing apace. But clearly when the history of the year is written, it'll be about two issues that have shaped the first half of the year. And I think those two issues are likely to drive the year ahead. The coronavirus uh, we're all beginning to build our understanding on, but much more recent is the racial justice movement. And quite frankly, um, I hesitated to talk about it today. It still feels early. It still feels like a moment that we're all dealing with the pain of, of the murders of uh, Rayshard Brooks, Mond Aubrey, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And we're still in the middle of, I think, a societal and, and personal journey, particularly for people like you and I, uh, Jason, who have had the privilege of growing up in a country as a white male. But I knew you'd ask. Uh, you're a reporter, so let me just share a few early thoughts about where I think we are and how it might shape the year ahead. 
there are many, many words that we could use, but I think it, it may be best just to start with pictures. Um, it feels different this time, 3,500 cities of protests. And if you go into these pictures, you see a racially diverse group of people engaged in it. Only two years ago, 40% of people were backing the Black Lives Matter movement. Today, uh, seven out of 10 white Americans say that racial injustice is a major problem for the country. Uh, these protesters were not deterred by a global pandemic. They were not deterred by tear gas in Washington, tornadoes in Florida. And the depth and breadth of what we're seeing, I think, speaks well to how it will shape the world ahead. You know, one of the pictures, quite frankly, that really impacted me was this is no longer just a U.S. issue. Uh, it's an issue that has grabbed the global attention, both reflecting upon the U.S. and reflecting on broader issues within the world. So as I look at where we've traveled so far and the world ahead, I think we're in the midst of a social and political revolution that's likely to be expressed in many ways. The question we also have to engage on is, will it be expressed in the business and investment world? And here, I think uh, I'm, I'm beginning to see a birth of a bit of optimism and a bit of action that I'm, I have to say I, I wasn't expecting to see as fast, and I'm gratified to see that it is moving. Uh, one of the cultural bellwethers I always look to, Jason, are the sports uh, uh, teams and Hollywood. And uh, sometimes they give you a sense of how the world is going to engage in an issue. And here the news is, frankly, nothing short of gratifying and amazing. The NFL, which was only 2016 that Colin Kaepernick took a knee. Think about what's happened since then. And in a immediate 180, it's moved to the right side of this issue. The idea that NASCAR would ban the Confederate flag from its events is uh, was a distant thought not too long ago. And one of the things I love, if you look at the announcement here, Jason, the presence of the Confederate flag, small C, Confederate. Traditionally, it's been large C, delegating not only the flag, but the Confederacy to the place it belongs to go. And uh, the Premier League, perhaps the most coveted advertising space in sports is a Premier League jersey. What's on there now? Black Lives Matter. So we're beginning to see the early signs of engagement through some of the cultural icons of the world. But the question is, is it gonna spread? And here again, uh, cautious green shoots. Three points I'd make. First of all, we have a little bit of an inside view of this because we own a company called EverFi, which is the number one producer of software on everything from DNI training to allyship. Uh, to unconscious bias. They also produce software that is resetting the teaching of uh, African-American history. And, and when we look inside that company, I was talking to the CEO over the weekend, we are seeing a doubling and tripling of inquiries from companies. So companies are understanding they can't just speak externally about this. They need to get their own house in order. So first of all, we're seeing early evidence of companies changing their internal practices. Second, Companies are stepping forward in a public way, and they're stepping forward with their pocketbook. Uh, Fortune 100 has already, according to Axios, done a billion six of pledges led by Bank of America. And so we're seeing engagement at a level we haven't seen before. And the third area, and this is in some ways, I think the most important, is our businesses 
really going to change their business practices to reflect this. And again, early green shoots, uh, the 15% pledge, the idea of putting 15% of your shelf space uh, into African-American uh, brands and companies. Amazon, Microsoft, and IBM have stopped selling facial recognition software. Estee Lauder is changing their hiring practices and committing to reflect the world makeup in their, uh, in their workforce, not just their historical makeup by 2025. And the third thing I would point out is yet to be seen, but again, I'm hopeful, is will consumers engage? Because if we can get society to engage, businesses to engage, consumers to engage, it'll build the foundation of what's happening here. While in no way drawing equivalency over my career, I've seen time to time where consumers have picked up social issues and expressed that in their buying patterns. We saw that in the clean food movement where organic grew to new levels as people expressed their desire to change how we eat as Americans. More recently, sustainable products of all sorts have really become the consumer choice. 50% CPG growth over the last few years have been in sustainable products. 30% of consumers say that they will spend more for a green product. So as we look forward on the racial justice movement, will consumers also express their desire here? We're seeing early evidence of that. Recent polls showed that 70% of consumers uh, said that they would reconsider their purchasing habits from a company if the CEO didn't speak up on this matter. So if we can get all of these flywheels working, society, business, consumer behavior, I think that the year ahead will be deeply shaped by this moment in this movement. That's TPG co-CEO and founding partner, Jim Coulter. And what I love, Jason, you guys talked about everything. Obviously, what's been going on the last 13, 14 weeks. Uh, and of course, you delved into our investment environment and kind of where we are. He, like so many others, are telling us we're at a time where we're going to see a lot of changes in industries that have happened because of the virus, but it sticks around longer, whether it's fitness, whether it's education, whether it's healthcare. And that was part of just a 45-minute uh, conversation. So if you want to check out the whole thing, just go to Bloomberg. Yeah, I really enjoyed catching up with Jim. It was a nice way to sort of reset my mind a little bit about where we're going. And also to be reminded that for big investors mm -hmm. and big executives, there is opportunity in disruption. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Plenty coming up in our next hour. We're going to go inside the magazine looking at how for black CEOs in technology, humiliation is part of doing business. It's not a new reality, Jason, unfortunately. It's an enduring one and a reminder of the many things that still need to change across this country. This story really knocked us back and uh, Sarah McBride told it so well. That's coming up. Plus, another edition of Business Week Talks featuring conversation with Chris Nassetta about a year on from the company's 100th anniversary. He is dealing, like all of us, with an unprecedented landscape. He's the president and CEO of Hilton Worldwide. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations 
we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show across the week. Right. And conversations that were happening, as we know, the news continued to change around us. Now, one of the guests that we caught up with is Everett Sands. He's the founder and CEO of Lendistry. It's a fintech company. It's a company that focuses on lending to very small businesses, especially those owned by minorities, women, and veterans. And I really felt like he is another one of those voices that helped open up kind of our eyes to what's going on in America. Yeah, looking forward to hearing that one back. Plus, another edition of Business Week Talks, our conversation with Hilton Worldwide President and CEO Chris Nassetta. First up, though, let's go inside the magazine. It's a story that, candidly, is hard to read. Mm -hmm. It's about black CEOs in technology and the fact that humiliation, well, that is part of the job. We caught up with reporter Sarah McBride. Well, um, it's uh, just a sad state of affairs, another way where Silicon Valley is disappointing, this time when it comes to African-American founders. I, with my colleague Priya Anand, reported a story where it was just jaw-dropping, the number of anecdotes we heard from Black founders and how they've just been subtly and not so subtly mistreated every step of the way in ways that white founders never have to think about. Yeah, I mean, and and it's interesting, Sarah, because what you guys do a really nice job of in the story, and I have to say, it's one of those stories that you have to read it, and as you're reading it, it's actually hard to read in, in some cases. It's horrifying in, in, in a lot of cases and, and sort of embarrassing in, in a lot of ways yeah. to, to think about. Yeah. Um, because it is anecdotal through your story, but also appears to be systemic. This is not sort of these one-off things that, that are happening. I mean, this is constantly happening. Right. In fact, um, one founder who I talked to who isn't in the story basically told me she was insulted that it's so well documented, the racism in Silicon Valley. She asked me, why do I even still have to talk to you to explain how racist Silicon Valley is? Can't we move behind, beyond the anecdotes? And um, the founder that was the lead of the story, Will Hayes, is somebody I met at a dinner maybe five or six years ago. And his story just stuck with me all those years. And um, when this moment came, I knew it was the time to approach him and ask if he'd go on the record with it. And uh, he's somebody who's run a company, Lucid Works, for many years and has raised many venture rounds for the company. And one of his key aides is, for many years, was his white marketing head. And whenever they went to a meeting together, very often the investor would just assume his marketing head was the CEO and reach out their hand to him first and shake the wrong guy's hand and say, hi, Will. Yeah. And they said it was horrifying, but it also became funny when it happened. You know, they said dozens and dozens of times over the years. I spoke to both of them in the end, and um, they said that if that happened, if the meeting got off on that foot, there was just no recovery, and they yeah. knew they would never raise money from that venture firm because the VC would realize the mistake and just be so mortified that they would want to end the meeting as quickly as possible. And there was never a check written from any of those firms. 
Will told me about one time he raised a $100 million round last year where he was sitting in a meeting. The investor had made that mistake and Will was five or 10 minutes into his presentation and the investor interrupted and said, you know, I just wanted to say again how very sorry I am that I made that mistake which told Will that the investor had heard nothing for the previous 10 minutes. He's just been so embarrassed. Um, It's just uh, an unpleasant situation when you're forced to deal with your own racism and certainly for the founder, not conducive to raising any money. And that's reporter Sarah McBride. And Carol, I have to say, when I read this story, and even as we were talking to Sarah, I just thought, I can't believe this. I mean, this is really stunning. Yeah, really important story, Jason. And she noted in her story about the racial makeup of VC, very similar to the rest of the tech industry, with about 3% of investment partners at VC firms being black. I do want to put out one positive note, though, in her story. She talked about tech companies, VCs. They're really responding in recent weeks with messages of solidarity. And they've also contributed more than $300 million um, or made investments towards minority groups. So they really, I think, are trying to make it better. But they've got a long way to go. They have a long way to go. And I feel like one of the things I took away from that story was all of the unconscious bias that is built in, you know, and I feel like maybe we're not talking as much as we should about that because the specific anecdotes about, you know, a black CEO walking in with his white employee and the VC going to the white employee and basically introducing himself and assuming that he was the CEO and the implications of that, the idea that basically that meeting never gets back on track and an investment doesn't happen. And so it's insidious in many ways. And I think a really important thing for us all to be thinking about. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the CEO of Lendistry on the importance of lending money to minority-owned small businesses. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had throughout the week on our daily radio show, covering a lot of subjects, Jason. But of course, front and center, yes, the virus, but also the continued protests over racism across the country. And I felt like so many of our conversations, Carol, really met at that nexus and really illustrated something that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, which is this crisis, both of these crises ultimately have a massive economic component. And that was at the core of our conversation with Everett Sands. He's the founder and the CEO of Lendistry. They work with small businesses, mostly minority-owned businesses. And one of the things they're doing is helping them navigate all the relief that's being put out by the government. Here's what he had to say. I mean, I think the first thing we want to do is kind of look at how we, how those businesses entered um, the covid you know, the COVID or pandemic situation, right? So, I mean, minority-owned businesses were already in financially precarious positions before the start of the the pandemic. Um, And now what we're seeing is, okay, closures, 22% kind of national average. Then you jump up to uh, 32% for Latino and 41% for African-American. This is the study out of University of California, right? Um, But the the problem is, is that it's just been devastating for so long. Access to capital has been an issue for so long. And then when you look at some of the programs that have been pushed forward, let's take PPP, for example. Historically, SBA has only done 3% of its lending to African-Americans. Um, and so the thought process might be, well, okay, here's this new program. It it has no collateral. It's it's a 
it's going to give you uh, a forgivable loan. And, you know, you have African-Americans coming in saying, wait, I, I don't know anyone that's ever been approved for SBA. The last time I tried to get approved for SBA, I got declined. The banks that I need to go to are the banks that have also declined me to get this loan. Hmm. And, and, oh, by the way, the process is cumbersome. I don't really know that there's going to be a forgiveness process that I'm going to be able to accomplish. I mean, let's just stop for a second. Loan and forgivable or forgivable loan don't even go together in a sentence, by the way. Um, and then when you also think about it, it's like, okay, the money's going to run out. So i got to have all my paperwork together. The money is going to run out immediately. And I'm going to deal with something that I've already tried in the past, and I have no peers that have been able to accomplish it. So that's the problem. Um, and and so an entity like Lindustry is constantly working on the solution, which is trying to help change that narrative. What really does change that narrative? What what makes the biggest difference and gives these, you know, gives those individuals who have been forgotten in the financial system, you know, an opportunity? Well, I mean, first of all, I hats off to the government and the administration because they have definitely tried to make some concrete changes. Mm-hmm. Last night was our 19th change. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that they're definitely trying. But I, I think from our perspective at Lindustry, there's some near-term, some middle-term, and long-term solutions. The, the near-term is we've got to get them back off the sideline. We've got to you know, raise the flag, sound the alarms, and say, the positive alarms, right, the bells maybe is a better word, hmm. that there is $120 billion left. The process has gotten easier, and the forgiveness process is being worked on. Um, we also have some su- suggestions that can make it even better where we would say, hey, let's take the loans at $100,000 and below, and let's just make them forgivable, really, really simple. A one-page application with certifications to the borrower. The second thing we would encourage is an extension of the program. It's going to take a lot longer to rebuild the the hope within the African-American borrowers. I mean, you can't go 60 days saying, jump in line, we're going to give you this SBA loan, and, and expect borrowers to react really quickly, especially after what happened in round one. So one of the things we think is let's let the community development financial institutions, the minority deposit institutions, and the CDCs, also called mission-based lenders, let them have until September 30th to keep working on this bar. It doesn't hurt the economy for them to keep going. In right. any way, shape, or form. So let's get to the long term here because there are big structural issues. We've talked about them. Uh, what does the government, what does the private sector need to do first? Yeah, so I think, uh, great question, Jason. You know, midterm, kind of right now, one of the things to really look at is that one of the really important features of the CARES Act has nothing to do with PPP. Uh, a considerable amount of money, a minimum of one and a quarter billion dollars, was given to each state. Based on population, states got more money than the one and a quarter. And several of those states have taken a portion of that money, and they said we're going to give grants to small business owners. Lindustry is actually in contracts right now or in conversations with one large state where we're going to release a nine-figure sum uh, to those state, to that state's small business owners. When you think about how to help small businesses, it's always a combination of equity and debt. Um, so that would be obviously the equity portion. The other thing we're looking at is all SBA loans approved between now and September 27th, six months of principal and interest will be paid by SBA. So if you got a loan September 1st, uh, the first payment will be April 1st. And so we want to help small business owners have that combination of patient capital, equity, and debt so that they can uh, restart and continue on their businesses and hopefully thrive uh, beyond that. Is there a case that the money is there 
through the government relief program, certainly for minority-owned businesses, um, and they just need some help in, in getting access to it, and we need the system to be a little bit more simpler? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Kara. I think part of it is when you think about access, which is what we, you know, common mm-hmm. theme is always access to capital. One of the things we've tried to do at Lindustry is we've tried to partner with financial institutions. So we have 40 different financial institutions that we partner with. For example, with PPP, we partner with Goldman Sachs. They've been an amazing partner. Um, they don't do small business lending. So part of it is, as financial institutions, we've got to say, okay, what am I good at? And where can I find a partnership that can deploy the capital um, to all business owners? And yes, in, with intentionality around minority business owners. So you know, there might be a financial institution that says, I'm going to focus on home ownership. Well, they're going to need help with small business or vice versa, right? Or student loans or other things that have affected underserved uh, communities, underserved borrowers, small business owners. Uh, I do think there's some other things that could also be done, which is we could look at banks, for example, and we could say, let's just let's give them double regulatory credits. So Community Reinvestment Act, let's give them double regulatory credits if they either deploy this capital or they partner with a mission-based lender that deploys the capital. And that's Lendistry CEO Everett Sands. This was a really important conversation and a callback for sure, Carol, to the conversation we had a few weeks ago that you and I keep going back to with John Hope Bryant. The mm-hmm. idea that there are some systemic, structural, economic elements to this, to this social justice movement that we really need to address. Well, and he reminds us, too, that there's so much room to still make up in terms of the injustices and inequalities in our financial system. When it comes to people of different colors, we need to understand, I love this point that he made, that we will make mistakes as we go along. That's key to the process, and it's okay, and it's how we all get better. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Sports Illustrated Executive Editor John Wertheim on bringing back sports in a pandemic. We're going to talk tennis. Uh, We are, and we're going to lament the fact that we won't (laughs) see him at the U.S. Open, but it was good to catch up with him and get his perspective. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had across the week on our Bloomberg Business Week daily radio show. Yeah, and this is a guest we love talking with, uh, Jason. We're talking about John Wertham, executive editor for Sports Illustrated, contributing correspondent for CBS 60 Minutes. And we caught up with him to talk about professional sports, how they're looking to get back to business. But what's interesting is we had to talk about tennis because the USTA came out this week and they said, yep, the US Open, it's going to take place like it always does in Flushing Meadows at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center as scheduled in late August. But big difference, there's not going to be any fans. We're all sort of cautiously <laughs> optimistic and a little ambivalent, and it, it's great that uh, the tennis microeconomy will uh, be restarted and some of these players who haven't earned a dime since, you know, since February and March can make some prize money. But it's going to be a very, very different U.S. Open, and that all sort of presupposes that we don't see some unpleasant trends in COVID. I mean, I think uh, yeah. everybody is a little ambivalent here. Well, I feel like just on the educational side, we've been watching like some of the, you know, Ivy League institutions weigh in on, you know, how do you reopen in the fall? We've been waiting for some of the iconic stars of tennis. And we did get a story. Our Jillian Tan, Serena Williams, said she will or she plans to participate in the U.S. Open. 
and that was uh, th- that I was told was was pivotal. That this mm-hmm. is being driven by television dollars, and Roger Federer's injured his knee, and a lot of players are in Europe and have expressed some real uh, uneasiness with crossing an ocean and, and coming to the U.S. And Serena Williams, who does not have to cross an ocean, and is uh, you know her sister turned forty today, and Serena's almost thirty nine. Um, she has indicated she is willing to play, and I was told that that went a long way towards enthusiasm, and this event is going to happen. They're not going to have as many stars as they did last year, but they've, they've got Serena, and that's a good starting place, and it is very significant. If, if Serena Williams says, I'm going to make like Federer, and I'm going to sit this one out, maybe I'll see in 2021, I don't know if we are having the same conversation. Really? Wow. Yeah. That I makes think that's sense. an interesting point. Um, a minute to go before we uh, do some news. John, w- what do you think, what jumps out at you as, other than not having fans, as the most radically different thing, f- either for the players or, or for those watching? Um, you know, for, for the sake of this broadcast, I will say that the, the U.S. Open makes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and yeah. a lot of that is driven by sponsor dollars. And it will be interesting to see not just fans, but no one in the suites, no one in the, the hospitality villages. Um, there, there is a huge sort of, uh, you know, a, a lot of, of revenue. There's a lot of scene at the U.S. Open that has nothing to do with tennis. It's for, you know, it's for hospitality and entertainment. That's not going to be there. The fact that there is enough money in television alone to pay the prize money and then presumably make the financials work tells you a lot about, A, media dollars these days, but also what percent of the revenues the players were getting in previous years, yeah. um, which is not going to uh, look favorably compared to other sports. We're here with John Wertham, executive editor for Sports Illustrated, special correspondent, uh, of course, for CBS 60 Minutes. John, what do you see coming back elsewhere in the sports world? Um, it's a great question. I think a lot of this depends on you know, labor relations. A lot of this depends on what season it is, whether there's international travel. I mean, the, the NBA is still talking about having this sort of bubble season in Florida. Baseball is unclear whether baseball will return, given uh, nothing to do with COVID, well, but only tangentially having to do with COVID. It, it's sort of the same labor strife that's plagued baseball for, for decades. Golf is back. Um, some of this is about the sport itself. Well, you know, when t- tennis, one thing it's got going for it is you've got two players separated by a net and, and yeah. yards apart. Right. They're socially distanced. They're also getting on planes from all over the world. College sports may not have international travel, but you also have the issue of sort of uh, unpaid labor. When you, when you hear about Ohio State football players, for example, who have to sign waivers about getting COVID, it makes us uneasy. So every, every sport sort of has its own set of challenges and uh it's going to be, you know, we're, we're learning a lot about labor economics. We're learning a lot about risk-reward. We're learning a lot about how sports are governed and which unions have cloud. It's really, in some ways, as someone who covers sport, it's really exposed a lot of the things that we don't often see exposed. That's John Wertheim, executive editor for Sports Illustrated. Really interesting to hear what he had to say about Serena Williams, that if she didn't sign on for the U.S. Open, maybe it wouldn't be happening, Jason. Absolutely. Well, we know that this is a star-driven business in totally. many ways. And so, yes, Serena signing on, especially with the absence of Federer. He has taken himself out of the season right. owing to that knee. Uh, we don't know what it's going to be like, though, the U.S. Open. And he also was able to give us some nice perspective on other sports and all the question marks around that.
Well, and so many of the question marks have to do with what he said. We're learning a lot about labor economics because yeah. union and labor issues and negotiations are often what's determining how, when, and if sports of all kinds ultimately come back. So a little bit of an economic lesson there as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Business Week Talks, our latest edition, features a conversation with Hilton President and CEO Chris Nassetta. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. It's time for another edition of Bloomberg Business Week Talks. And in this edition, we welcome back someone we've talked with, Jason, before. It's Chris Nassetta. He's the president and CEO of Hilton Worldwide Holdings. And we know how many times we talk throughout the week about the travel industry. It's 10% of the global economy, and it is getting being hit on so many different fronts. And leisure travels, business travelers, they're not going to come back for a long time. They're not. And that was clear from what he said. I mean, he's an naturally optimistic guy, uh, but this is a business that is really facing a massive reckoning. Check it out. I'm saddened by everything that's going on, and this is something that, as you can imagine, in a in an industry and in a company that is incredibly diverse, this is this is a huge issue. This is diversity is not a new thing for us. You know, we've been focused in in this area for a long, long time and and been recognized for it. We're number two diversity inc. Um, ranking in the United States for for diversity. Um, but the reality is, um, as is depicted by what's going on, you know, right here in my hometown of Washington, you know, I could literally hear the protests going on from my house and explaining to my children, uh, two of whom both in New York and Washington ended up in the march, you know, to to support their black friends uh, in in this process. This is a sad day for America. And I think we've had many of these sad days uh, over the years and and in recent years. And I think to your to your point in the question, it's high time we do something about it, that we not just talk about it, but that we act upon it. Uh, and that means that collectively, as a society and as a country, as we think about uh, reform, we need to think about this and we need to do something about it, including the criminal justice system. And that means each and every one of us um, that has that, that are leaders across a broad range of industries, we need to, even if we were, we were focused on it, and even if we were, as is the case with Hilton, recognized for it, we have to recognize we have never done enough. You know, given what is going on and what we're seeing, what is abundantly clear is there is so much more to do. And so like everything, for me and for Hilton, it's about trying to be a constructive part of the solution. And so, you know, we are very, I've been communicating like crazy with all of our team members, including uh, our black team members all around the country. The stories I've been hearing are heart-wrenching, that they're pouring their hearts out about the impact, you know, throughout their life that racism has had on them. There's obviously no place in society, no place uh, in, in, in our industry, and no place in our company for racism. And so as a company, as much as we've been focused on it, there is so much more that we can do at all levels of our company to create more opportunities for our black team members. And that means at the very top of the ecosystem, as we think about and already we're thinking about our board of directors, to the lowest levels of the company and to make sure that we're creating opportunities and a feeder system to to develop 
our uh, teammates in the in the black community in a way where they can have bigger and better opportunities. And so, as I say, this is something we were focused on, okay, but I don't want to rest on our laurels and the fact that we were ranked number two. That's not good enough. I think for everybody, every leader, I think that the message is um, we we obviously have not done enough and that as society, as business leaders, as political leaders, we need to use this moment to rally for change and not have it be like it has honestly been in a number of other cases in recent years where we talk, there's a burst of activity and then we go back to to uh, right. you know back to where we were. Right. Well, and Chris, this is obviously coming at a time when you are listening and and thinking about your business in probably the most existential and holistic way that you ever have, and you've been in this business for a long time. If you think 30, about thirty seven years, believe right. it or not, <laughs> yeah. uh, I would I have hate said saying 15, that number. Right? Geez, did you start so when you were five? Old. What happened, exactly. Chris? No, I thank you, Carol. That's very kind of you. No, I didn't. I'm older than you think. What's all the, the gray, all the gray hairs that I that I have, and a lot more than in ninety days than I had uh, I had before. Exactly. What's the biggest single thing that's going to change about travel? Uh, I think here's the thing. I think, guys, when you wake up, and you may think I'm being a Pollyanna, and I'll answer the question. I think when you wake up in three years, okay. I think travel, it's hard to see it right now, like it was hard to see it after 9-11 in the, in the wake of that. I think travel and the experience in a hotel will look a lot more like it did 90 days ago than it does now. Okay, and now it looks like there's not many people in the hotels. You see people in PPE, um, social distancing, you know, unbelievable, you know, hygiene protocols like our deal with Lysol and the Mayo Clinic to provide hospital cleanliness standards, et cetera. Some of that stuff will will go on and and some of it, you know, will will revert back to normal. What will be different, you know, in my mind is things that were already happening will accelerate, okay? So, example, we've made, and we talked about it last year when we were together, huge investments in technology. And I'm not just saying it because we've made these investments uh, to promote Hilton, that's my job, but but I'm saying it because I think it will be broadly what you find in the industry. There are things in, with technology, the digitization of, of our business that were happening, that were happening at a relatively slow pace. And I think many of those things will the adoption rate, the the expansion of the digitization and the speed of that happening will excel, accelerate like crazy. So, example, we've already rolled out to almost every hotel in the world digital check-in, digital room selection, and digital key. So, on your Hilton Honors app, you can have you already could have had contactless entry. So, for our Hilton Honors members, about a third of the people used it. Um, I, you know, when we have customers that are coming back in the hotels, you will see mass adoption of that. And then people won't go back. It'll be like a cash flow machine was, you know, 35 years ago where everybody, you know, once it got adopted, people realized, wow, this is easy. This is seamless. Why wouldn't I do this? You know, other technologies like how you run everything in the room, we call it connected room, how you run temperature, how you run lighting, how you run your audio, visual, um, all of that, which we developed in a proprietary technology uh, called Connected Room, and we're rolling out, not as extensively as Digital Key, you will see that demand for that and adoption of that uh, accelerate. I do believe you'll also see 
hygiene standards while yeah. they were really right. good in the industry already, by the way. Mayo Clinic was 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 uh, sort of shocked at how good we already were when we when we sat down with them to figure out what to do. There's no reason why you won't see those uh, higher higher standards. But it's digitization will accelerate. Chris, Chris, I got to ask you, because people are like, you know, tweeting at me and messaging me. I've got to ask you, because you said it's going to be, you know, three years from now, well, it'll look a lot like, you know, more like it did, you know, 90 days ago, right? Pre-COVID in terms of kind of the, the travel industry, the hotel industry coming back. But, you know, what what are you seeing so far? I mean, how robust a pickup in travel do you expect based on any of the advanced booking data that you're seeing? And I'm also curious it about is, about business it, travel. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's three big segments in our business. There's leisure transient, business transient, and then group business. You know, the vast majority of our business, well, 75% of our business relates to business-related travel, either groups or business transient, and 25% of it is what you would think of as leisure travel. Most people don't think about that, but that's sort of the breakdown of, of our business. And what we're seeing is significant recovery, okay, but still um, very significantly off of any sort of historical standards. So I'll give you uh, put put some basic numbers. I think at the bottom, system-wide occupancy for us in uh, in 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 May would have been you know like ten or twelve percent, two or three times better than it was. But to keep that in perspective, we finished last year with an average occupancy of almost seventy-five percent. Okay, so. It is meaningfully, uh, devastatingly um, lower than where it was, but you are seeing a slow grind. And the way it's happening, which is fairly typical, uh, by the way, in other other declines, it's leisure first, it's business, and then it's group. And right now, what we're really seeing is predominantly growth and leisure. So like Memorial Day weekend, we had markets near beaches and you know, where people want to get out. We had hotels that were at capacity, lower capacity because of distancing than normal, but as much capacity as we could handle. But business travel has not really come back in earnest because yeah. most people still aren't back in their offices and allowing people to travel. And that's Kristen Setter, the president and CEO of Hilton Worldwide. Good to catch up with him. Yeah. He's an optimistic guy, as we said, and yet, and yet, the travel <laughs> business is going to take a long time to recover. Well, and as we say when we uh, you know, do this show, that the news is happening around us as we have these interviews. And after we talked with Chris, uh, Hilton Worldwide came out and said it's cutting nearly 22% of its corporate workforce globally. So we're talking about 2,100 corporate employees. It's also extending its corporate pay cuts, reduced hours and furloughs for up to three more months. So they are continuing to have to pare back their industry because, Jason, it's really simple. The demand is just not there, and they just don't know when it's going to come back. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And in addition to our daily podcast, download our Business Week Extra podcast this week as well, featuring our conversation with comedian Paul Reiser. He's not just a comedian, man. He's an actor. He's an author. He's a writer. Uh, If you follow his Twitter feed, he's certainly watching what's going on in the world around us. But just like us, Jason, he is working from home. Yeah, true multi-hyphenate. It was definitely one of our favorite conversations of the week. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.